We're back to the Neil Haley Show on the Total Celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome the program Tatiana Ali. We all remember her from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Tatiana, thanks for calling. How are you? Oh, I am doing great. How are you? Fanta- thanks for having me. Fantastic. Let's talk about your days as a child actor. How amazing was it to be part of that cast? Tell us mm-hmm. and reminisce on that. Um. You're talking about Fresh Prince, Yeah, Fresh Prince, yeah, absolutely. It was incredible. Yeah, we laughed till we cried almost every day. (laughs) Um, And it's a a hard standard to to live up to for any other project that I do. But, um, yeah, we worked together for six years, and I was there from the pilot till the very last episode, and it changed my life and changed my family's life. And um, we're all still very close. We we lost James Avery, who played mm-hmm. yeah. uh, played Uncle Phil. Um, uh, but you know, the rest of us, we get together and we keep him alive in our hearts. And it was just amazing. It was magical, and it felt magical while we were doing it. And I think people still feel that. And um, but you never quite can 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 you know forecast that something will continue to be on TV every day for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, it's it'll always be on TV. You all you'll you'll, you'll you'll live on it at a certain age forever, Tatiana, and it's it's just a great thing. You, you as an an actress, you just wish for something like that. Uh, absolutely. And then you graduated from yeah, Harvard too. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I, yeah, no. I, yeah, you're right. I did. I did. <laughs> I um I Put out uh, an album after Fresh Prince called Kiss the Sky, and got to tour around the world and open up for InSync and the Backstreet Boys. Wow. And um, I deferred a year of, of college to do that, and then I went to school and graduated from Harvard. And so that's 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 shows people mm-hmm. that they need to know that you, you have to have both. Uh, you were successful in acting, but you got to always have that backup. And I tell you, Harvard, then that's fantastic. And a lot of times you were getting homeschooled, right? throughout the whole time you were there, right? So that, you really had to be self-disciplined, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I really loved school, and I didn't feel like, you know, once high school was done and I graduated, I didn't I didn't feel like my education was finished. Um, my parents are, are immigrants. You know, they're from, my mom's from Central America, from Panama, and my dad's from Trinidad, and you know, they really came here because of those opportunities. And so it was instilled in me and my sisters that an education was so important. And I, what I found is that it's not so much a backup. It's I use my education all the time as an actor. Um, I've produced some. I, it influences the kind of roles that I take and why and um, who I choose to work with. And, you know, it's, I don't know, it's just kind of, Growing yourself, you know, it's something that once you once you do it and and um, invest in it, it, it never leaves you. It becomes a part of you. Absolutely. And now let's talk about Lifetime's movie wrapped up in Christmas, and that's mm-hmm. going to be again November twenty fifth at eight p.m. Eastern. And you have a really all star cast. It was funny. Yeah. I think you're talking about the people that are going to be in this movie. So first, tell us about some of the cast, and then we'll get into your character and the storyline. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of Fresh Prince, I'm I'm working again with Joseph Marcel. He played uh, Jeffrey on Fresh Prince, oh, yeah. our butler. Um, but this time, Joseph is playing my dad. And we have not worked together since Fresh Prince. It was so 
it was so awesome to just be on set or like in the makeup trailer and look over and see Joe. It, we didn't, you know, even always have to say anything. It just felt like home. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, just, just, just him being there. Um, so he's in it. Kim Fields plays my oldest sister. Um, Kim Fields has done tons of work. She's a director now, too, but people would know her from, um, from Facts of Life. Uh, Jasmine Guy plays, uh, plays my mom. Jack K. Harry from 227 is in this. <sighs> Um, Dan Laurie, Mindy Sterling, and Brendan Fair is my co-star in this, and he's just he's just an awesome person and actor. We had a really good time. Well, Tatiana, shooting a Christmas yeah. movie in July, absolutely. In well, yeah, yeah, but now now we're getting near Christmas. It's a perfect time for this movie, right? To kind of get us back, get us in the holiday season. It's very hard. Uh, trust me. And since the the way our country's gone the last couple of years, to get ourselves in that holiday mood, and now it's t- it's time to get it right uh, coming up soon. So, yeah, the premise of the story, my uh, my character's uh, little her niece. Um, who she spends a lot of time with and adores, uh, asks uh, the mall Santa uh, just for one wish, and that's for her aunt to find love. And my character is this, you know, she's she's a workaholic, and um, she's really down with love and just doesn't believe in that anymore, much less, you know, the spirit of Christmas and all this. She actually has to, one of the things in her job is to, go through the stores in the mall and, you know, determine who's profitable and who's not. And she has to do a lot of really difficult and kind of mean firing. And um, she, during the course of the story, starts to believe in love again and this magic Christmas. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, it's, you know, you go into these movies I, I love the I loved kind of discovering the story as you're doing it, and I felt like it was so timely because I a lot of people don't believe in love, and like you said, the holidays are difficult for a lot of people. It's um, if you if you feel alone or if you do feel stressed out at work or you know you do feel like there's not enough love to go around. It's a really hard time, and um, yeah, this film like it speaks to that. And it also just, I think it'll make people feel really good. Absolutely, Tatiana. It'll make a, make you feel good. And, and look at our relationships today. Look at the difference uh, from relationships before cell phones and social media and all yeah. these different apps. Uh, people are looking for love in all the wrong places instead of the right places. And so, you know, this is something that will get you in that Christmas mood. We'll get you in the mood of finding love and mm-hmm. all that. So, Tatiana, what else is going on with you? Any other projects do you have going on right now, like? You, you know, you graduated from Harvard, so are you full-time acting, or so our listeners out know what's going on with you right now? Yeah, I am. I'm full-time acting. I'm. Um, I'm also still singing. I uh, have two. I actually recorded two songs, two Christmas songs for for this film. That they're actually in the film. One's the the opening song called "Wrapped Up in Christmas." You hear it at the very beginning. Um, and another is a more uh, kind of ballady standard that happens later in the film. So I'm still doing that. I'm doing a lot of voiceover work, which is fun, especially because I have um, a one-year-old. I have a 14-month-old oh, baby, oh, wow. and um, 
Yeah, so so doing this film is kind of like I'm getting back in the, the swing of work again, and I get to share this one with him for the holidays. This is the first, you know, he had a Christmas. This is not his first Christmas, but I think this is the first Christmas, you know, where he will have some kind of understanding of what's going on. <laughs> All right. So I'm excited for it. Yeah, like my, my, my big project uh, coming up is, Oh my gosh! I had no idea what my mom and my parents went through <laughs> <laughs> well, to make the holidays happen for us uh, when we were kids. Like I just thought, you know, it was just magic and it just oh, it's, happened. It, it, but it, it, yeah. but it's not like you you have to you know put effort into into like the season changing and in into it meaning something. Um, you know, seeing family and reaching out to people and. Um, it puts a whole new twist on things. It's, All right. it's so much fun, fun to, to make it for him. Well, good luck uh, with the Christmas season, the holiday season, everything. Uh, everyone needs to tune in November 25th, 8 p.m. Eastern, to Wrapped Up in Christmas. And we can follow you on social media, all social media outlets as well. Tatiana, people can check you out. Yeah, yeah, it's my name. Yep, Tatiana Ali. All right, well, thanks for calling, Tatiana. Best of luck, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show in the author's corner segment. And I'm excited to welcome to the program ex-Manson family member, Diane Lake, author of Member of the Family. Diane, thanks for calling. How are you? You're welcome. I'm good. Oh, so let's talk about, this must be hard to write this book, right? To go back to that time and to really think about one of the most horrific times of your life in certain ways, and also you thought joyous at first, right? Yes. It was? It was very, it was very difficult, but it was, it was also cathartic, so, uh, and I had a great collaborator. Really? Okay, so when you said, I'm going to go ahead and go ahead and write this, you said to yourself, okay, now I have to share. Were you fearful at times to talk about what you did and everything and that, that whole process of being part of, of one of the of Manson family? Yeah, well, I've been keeping it a secret from the majority of my friends and family, you know, for the majority of those 50 years. So it, it was quite the process to... Um, unravel all of that. My husband of 35 years had died, and I had this epiphany that now was the time to write the story. I was in therapy for grief, and it all just right. kind of all, you know, fell together. And it's been, it's really been very good. This public exposure has been another, you know, I, 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 I didn't, when I wrote, the, when I wrote my book, I didn't think about you know, this much public exposure. So that's been another hurdle, but I'm, I'm getting over it, and it's, it's making me feel like it was the right thing to do. Right, absolutely. I could, I could feel for you in so many ways to keep the secret for so long and then have, have the book come out. So thinking about it, Diane, tell me how you met Charlie. How, tell us the story of how that happened. I went to this party with a couple friends, and there he was, playing music in the center of a circle for the group. But what was so incredible is that 
when I walked in, two of the girls jumped up and exclaimed, Charlie, Charlie, Diane is here. And I couldn't, it it was just unfathomable to me how they knew me. How did they know me? I didn't know them. And he said, oh, here's our Diane. And so it was pretty surreal. Wow. Oh, my. So, and what age were you when you first met him? I was 14, correct? Am I correct? Yes. Yeah, 14. So, when, what people don't know, especially my generation, again, I'm in my 40s, and, you know, you hear about Charlie Manson, you hear about the murders, you hear about all the specific things, that he was a very charming guy, wasn't he? And ultimate, and very, uh, and very pop culture for that time, correct? He was. He was very charismatic. And because of the Summer of Love, you know, he really capitalized on that and having, you know, had training, you know, by various pimps or whatever in the jail, he came out and he, you know, I think he he went to work. (laughs) Wow. And for sure. And did you have any idea... Uh, when did you finally figure out that basically this guy is not as good news as I thought first by falling for him and the family and stuff like that and finally saying, oh, my gosh, there's something really wrong with this guy? Uh, well, I noticed uh, about a year later, you know, kind of the change of energy. He was more energized to get us to the desert. Um, you know, there was more talk about this race war. He, you know, was preaching the White Album, getting deeper into his delusion about being the Messiah, and this impending race war was now being called Helter Skelter. But at that point, I was so brainwashed, I fully believed his delusion, and looking back, it seems crazy, but I had been in the desert, and I I disobeyed him and came back, and they were at um, they were at a different place. They weren't at Spawn Ranch. They were a few miles away from Spawn Ranch. And just the energy there was really different. And he was furious with me for having di- not only disobeyed him, but he, he obviously did not want me there. Oh, my gosh. And so he, why didn't he want you there? What was the reasoning? I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. All I can imagine is that it's because he now had this agenda. They were, you know, they were stealing and fixing up, you know, cars to turn into dune buggies. He was, you know, obsessed with getting us to the desert and that there was going to be this race war. He was putting supplies and gas and, and all of that. And I think, you know, he wanted me to stay up there in the desert. So when I showed up, it was like, oh, you know, I was jailbait, probably. And, you know, he wasn't happy that I disobeyed him. Let's talk about you being naive at 14, like every 14-year-old. My daughter is is 12, and I couldn't imagine uh, being caught up in something like this. Were you mature for your age, or do you think you're just very naive and just you fell for all of it, or did you understand specific things more than some 14-year-olds your age? Maybe. I, you know, I, I don't know. I did have, you know, I, I have been told that I'm very intelligent. Um, I had a good education in Minnesota. We moved to California. Um, the school 
the school system really was a kind of a repeat of fifth and sixth grade. I hate to say that, but it it was true. And I was the oldest of three children, and I'd always been, you know, a do-it-myself, independent. I walked at nine months, you know. Uh So my mom didn't have anything else to compare it to. They thought, and at 14, your daughter's going to think she knows it all at 14. (laughs) And so, Um, and then it's this new, it's this whole new realm. You know, Timothy Leary is espousing, you know, everybody should take acid and, you know, it's the way to enlightenment and, you know, just the summer of love. So everything was just got turned inside out and I slipped through the cracks because most of the hippies either had children much younger than me or they were of age and became hippies. I didn't have peers. I didn't. Right. I, I don't remember any other fourteen to sixteen year olds that were caught up in this counterculture. Oh, I mean, I can, I understand what you're talking about and uh, that process. And basically, writing this book, you wanted to set the record straight. People, I definitely have to pick up the book to really set the record straight. But you were one of the family members that did end up with their lives and didn't end up really doing the horrific things that a lot of Charlie's mem- uh, other family members did. Are, are, you, are you kind of uh, feel bad for them in how he brainwashed them, some of the other girls, in so many ways that it's so hard for you ever to get over? I do, and I, but I, on the other hand, I don't understand. I don't understand how they could have done it. I just, I, I don't think I could have done, I don't think I could have done it. You know, even though um, I did have a, a, a love for Charlie, but I also didn't know where else to go. I mean, I didn't know where my family was. Um, and, I, and I'd been, and when I had been there, I didn't feel like I belonged. So I was kind right. of in a, you know, and I'd been to juvenile hall, and I didn't want to go there, and I didn't want to be part of a foster family. So it was, uh, you know, I was between a rock and a hard place, and Charlie took Gosh, advantage yeah. of me. Well, and that's what people do in the call. I just for praise sure, God. And, uh, I praise God I got out, you know, and I lived to tell the tale. Absolutely. Okay, best place we can purchase a book in all finer bookstores. Is there a place we can find more info on you, Diane, as well, and stuff? You can Your just, book? you know, yeah. 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 you can just Google it. Uh, Rolling Stone did an interview. I was on Dr. Phil, Nightline, um, uh, Good Morning America. There's just there's a ton of uh, interviews out there. All right. Well, Diane, uh, I'm glad you were able to overcome. Thanks for calling and take care. Appreciate it. All right. See ya. You're listening to Neil Haley's show. and We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show in the total celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome to the program. John C. McGinley, John C. Thanks for calling stand against evil. How are you, John? And I know you're excited about season two with the success of season one. Congratulations on the success of season one. First of all, Thanks, Neil. For for people who don't or aren't hip to Stand Against Evil yet, it's I would say that the high pitch on it is it's it's Archie Bunker fighting witches. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And were you excited, especially this project being such a baby to yours and such an important thing to see how everyone is really the what the 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 claim that this show's gotten and everything in the first season going into the second. It's got to make you really happy. caught us off guard when the New York Times put it on their, their 10 best new shows list last year, and that gave us a bit of a stamp of validation. But, but what we've cultivated really um, meticulously is the tone of Stand Against Evil. And what I mean is that because it's a comedy horror, I would say the two ends of the spectrum are, are The Exorcist, which is scary, but yes, yes. you can't really tell a joke in The Exorcist. And the other end of the spectrum would be Scooby-Doo, which is funny, but there's nothing really scary in Scooby-Doo. So somewhere in the middle of those two is an American werewolf in, in London and Stand Against Evil. And it's, it's hard. It's a hard tone to maintain because you don't ever want to declaw the, the witches, but you also want to be able to tell jokes. And that's where Stand Against Evil lives. And so that's so important to think about, John, is that that's the thing. It's funny, but yet it's also scary in certain ways. And that that brings your comedy element and your dramatic uh, type of violent element of your acting all into one, which you love this part because this character, right? All those different areas. Absolutely. But it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to balance those two, and that's where our primary focus has been. And, and we were on to that early, and, and we've maintained it, and, and now it's starting to yield huge dividends. Because you've got to remember, when you go to these different Comic-Cons, which we've gone to in San Diego and New York and, and Silicon Valley, the, the people who, who are monster aficionados and witch and, and scary aficionados, they don't want you messing with the monsters. They gotta, if they're not going to be scary, then you're going to lose a really, a really important segment of, of the demographic that watches the show. And so we, we hew to that and, and respect the, our monsters. We, we, we cherry pick from the hiatus crew from The Walking Dead down in Atlanta. And if they're, if they're not working, which they're not when we're down there, we put all the department heads of The Walking Dead on Stand Against Evil, and that's why it looks so good. And that's the other thing that you talk about, the Comic-Cons and all those different things, is that you're getting becoming a cult favorite. You talked about the New York Times, but your guys are getting out there because you, you know, again, your name and some of the other stars' names really are great, and to get out and visit those places is such an important part of the promotion of, of a show that's not on a major, major network, and that's what you've done is great promotion as well. I really enjoy the Comic-Cons. I think there's a trap when you go to your first one and you see everybody dressed up. And Have you gone to a Comic-Con, Neil? No, I have not. I want to so bad, but it's, I have not yet. It's wild. It's, it's fantastic. But the first time you go, there's a trap to be a little too judgmental. But that you have to check yourself. And the reason you have to check yourself is because it's no different than fans painting their face green and going to a New York Jets game. It, it's, it's all just people just really supporting whatever it is that they really dig. And people come to Comic-Cons, and they're really smart, and they know the show's backwards, and they ask relevant questions, and they consume the content like nobody else's business. And those are your fans, and that's what's buttering your bread. And so I love going to the Comic-Cons, and I love meeting people at them. 
Absolutely. And then then you get these fans to see up close and personal, and then people watch it. And the promotion, you got to hand it to you how you guys are promoting. You're really looking at specifically all marketing areas to get this show out there, social media-wise, radio-wise, television, getting it out there so people know about this show, and then they tell their friends, and there you go. It grows once you get the acclaim, and that's what's awesome. Yeah, it's so interesting that when we were – was lucky enough to be on uh, Scrubs for uh, almost 10 years. And when you were doing Scrubs, you know, it was largely, the, the focus was largely on doing late night talk shows and from David Letterman to Jay Leno. And now uh, you go to these different Comic-Cons and you get in these, these rooms with these young people who have blogs and their blogs, uh, their podcasts go out to 4 million people. And so you're talking to a, a guy who's a, a horror fanatic. Well, I'll make it up, but Steve Steve's podcast. Right. And you're talking to this hypothetical Steve, and he has three million people who listen to his podcast. And so that that's the new normal, and it's fantastic because he shows up in a room. You know, you're in New York at the Javits Center at this at this Comic Con, which is where we just were. And a young guy walks into a room. He puts his iPhone down. He presses record. And that's the overhead. There are no lights. There's no makeup. There's no hair. He's just talking to this young guy who knows the show backwards and it's fantastic. And he'll, he'll edit together a podcast that will go out to 4 million people. There it's great. You, see, that's, that's the thing that's changed in this business. And John, that's the new normal. The new normal. And see, you guys are understanding that new normal. I don't think all the broadcast stations are understanding the new normal yet, John. I agree. And that's why. I agree. You know, and it's so key. And then if you're not connected on social media and you don't know what you're doing on social media, you miss out as well. So, John, this season's going to be very interesting. And, again, people need to definitely just go ahead and check it out. But you're going to have a lot of cool guest star appearances as well this year, right, uh, for this season? Yes, we too. have Stephen Ock came on this year and, and Jeffrey Combs from the Reanimator. And uh, we, we the takeaways from the first season, if you're lucky enough to, on a TV show, you know, a lot of shows get canceled after one, but if you're lucky enough to come back for a second year, hopefully, um, there was some, some takeaways, and one of the takeaways from the first year was the girl who plays my daughter, the young woman who plays my daughter, uh, Deborah Baker Jr., is the female Jonathan Winters of her generation, and just like Neil Flynn, the, the janitor in, in, in Scrubs, you have to let people who are really skilled and gifted improvisational actors, you got to let them improvise. And so we let Deborah really just loose. Uh, and, and then we also brought in more guest stars this year. And there's a, there's a nice talent pool down in Atlanta, but it's better in New York and Los Angeles, but it's expensive to bring actors in. But we did, and it was the smartest thing we did. All right, fantastic, and everyone needs to tune into season two, John. Where's the best place we can go right now? Because again, on November first, it, it's uh, season two is available now. Where can we go, John, to watch the episodes and learn more about you and all that stuff? Where's the best place? It's pretty easy. You can either go to IFC, the IFC app. IFC is for Independent Film Channel. So either IFC, the IFC app. You can go to iTunes. You can go to Hulu. You can go to Amazon. And you're staying busy, too, John, with other projects as well. It's not just Stand Against Evil, right? You're staying busy, aren't you? Yeah, well, a lot of my focus, uh, we spent the weekend in Denver where we had our uh, 
our Global Down Syndrome uh, uh, Be Beautiful, Be Yourself fashion show oh. where all our models come down a catwalk and all our models are young people who were born with Down Syndrome and I get some of my celebrity friends to accompany them and uh, we raised $2.6 million and then an independent uh, donation of $1 million came in and so that put us at 3-6 and we've never ever been in that altitude before and so I'm, I'm coming off one of the great weekends of our life. Well, fantastic, John. Best of luck with season two and uh, hope to chat with you for season three or any other projects you have going on. So thanks for calling, John. Thanks, Neil. All the best. All right, take care. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show on the Author's Corner segment. And I, I tell you, I, st- I started to study this story uh, more and more when I watched the uh, investigation uh, ID channel on Discovery last week because I knew I was going to have an opportunity to interview, so I'm welcome to the program. Rachel Jeffs, author of Breaking Free Today. How are really you? Really good. Fantastic. Now, Thank so yeah. let, let's go into this really in so many ways. This must be really hard for you to go ahead and write this story, right, and tell the story. It's it's very hard to look back to these things, and especially with so many family members still in this cult and what they would think as well, right? Am I correct? Yeah, in a way it was in a way it was it felt good to get it out though, you know. It did. It was healing in a way and in other times it was really hard and I had to go do something else for a while in the process of writing, but it it it, it was yeah, it was healing in a way and hard in a way. And that's that's the the challenge of all this is to write this down on paper. What made you decide to write it? Write this book? Because after I left, so many people came to me asking me my story, and it was just overwhelming, and the story was so such a big story that I just told them I was just going to write a book, and then they could read it. And then also I felt like it could help other people in that weren't from the church in other bad situations. And then thinking about your father and looking at specifically enough his father, the church wasn't as bad to Warren started running, right? Kind of explain that to people because that's what I learned oh, more and more. Not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when 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 father was when Warren Jeffs wasn't the leader, it was much more easy to live. Like we could still laugh, we could still play games, we could go camping and swimming and fishing and hiking and all that stuff. It was okay. I mean, we still had the strict rules on dress, but that was pretty much it, you know, and boys couldn't touch girls, basically. That was the most strictness. Other than that, we lived a pretty normal life, so to say. And in and, and a situation where you felt safe, that changed, Rachel, once your yeah. father, because your father just controlled everything to the point where you literally had to do exactly what he said because he was the prophet, right? That's pretty much what happened once he... Oh, very he, he, much. Yeah. Explain that to our listeners, yeah. And he sent stricter and stricter revelations, supposedly from God, that we had to eat certain foods and not eat others, and that we had to put our right sleeve on before our left sleeve, you know, our right shoe on before our left shoe, just pray, kneel down and pray and say that loud prayer every hour, you know, just a lot of strict rules that just became almost unbearable to live. And for yourself, kind of take us into your situation uh, again and explain to people polygamy um, and how he had many wives, but how you, he is your father and what you had to deal with on a, a regular basis living there. 
Yeah, I, I, growing up, um, Warren Jeffs, my father had a lot of wives, but, and, and that wasn't as hard as actually being a polygamous wife. I mean, at times, the other mothers were mean to me if they were mad at my mom or so like that. But most of the time, they were pretty kind. Um, becoming a sister wife and having a lot of jealousy and bad feelings toward me or me towards others. And I realized that especially toward me because I think my husband favored me in some way just because of who I was. And so my kids suffered a lot at the hands of their other mothers. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And that's the, the process. And then the situation happens if you are on Warren's bad side, he could decide if you're one of the men that you have to leave. You have to up and leave. as So you yeah. could have a husband, and that husband decide, has to leave because Warren didn't like the direction he was going, if he didn't really agree with what he said. Kind of explain that. And then basically the family starts over again, and the wife becomes someone else, some, someone else's wife. It's really, uh, yeah. yeah, explain if, that. Yeah. If all, he had so much, he had, um, Warren Jeffs had so much control that if he decided a man was unworthy for over nothing, he would send him away forever and take that man's family and marry him to other men, and they would have to start their life over with another man and take their kids, and they're suddenly part of another man's family. And Or he could decide that about us. He could say, oh, you're not worthy, you need to go repent for a long period of time and would send us away to live alone for a long time and without our kids or our families and just live in solitary confinement, basically, until he decided we were worthy to return. Which is absolutely terrible. And you thought, okay, once he was arrested, guess what? It's over, right? The the problems aren't going to happen uh, anymore. And that's not the case at all. He's still controlling everything still, isn't he? Right, because from infancy, everyone was taught that he could do no wrong, that he was a perfect man, so, and that he would always be the prophet as long as he lived. So people just felt like, in prison or not, you know, he was their leader, and they didn't believe he did wrong. They believed he couldn't do wrong, so they just thought he was just being persecuted for religious beliefs. So tell us, before uh, we find a way we can pick up the book and stuff, is how did you escape? How did you leave? Because, again, explain to people, they have no television, they have no interaction to the outside world. You just have to decide, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to leave my family and everything to start a new life, which is very challenging when you're in a cult. Explain how difficult it was to leave. You know, I was sexually abused by my dad, I mean, molesting and stuff, and I... I thought I was alone, and he so much made me feel like it was my fault. And so when I realized, when my sister had told me that he also did it to her, I realized I wasn't alone, and it gave me strength to stand up and say, hey, let's we're going to leave. We can't put up with this anymore. You know, look at all these terrible things Father is putting us through, taking our kids away, making us live alone. He was basically punishing us for what he did to us, trying to break us down to believe that he was better than us. And we wouldn't put up with it anymore. And that that's really what gave us the strength to leave. And it, it was hard. It was the hardest decision I ever made to leave just because I knew I'd never talk to my family or see them again because they would think I was the worst person for making that choice. But it, we had to be really secretive to leave and sneak out. And even after we left, he sent men from the 90 seconds to try and get us to come back to follow us and 
tell us that we were going to lose our salvation and our kids' salvation if we didn't come back. Oh, my gosh. And that's the problem, that you're considered a sinner in the outside world, and you're shunned, kind of almost like the Amish in so many ways. Am I correct, Rachel? That they yeah. shun you, and they, yeah. don't, they will never, even if you had the greatest relationship with your kids, and you left, and you're gone, your kids will never talk to you again, the older ones who decide, I'm just going to stay. And that's, 60 seconds. that's really yeah. hard, isn't it? Yep, yep. Yep, that's why I was anxious to get my kids out before they got any older. And that's smart because then they would be brainwashed in so many ways. So what's your whole hope for the book is to really get people to understand your story and that for people that can be drawn in to say, oh, my gosh, this is this is bad news. you got to figure out a way to finally stop this, right? And that's another one of your goals of this book is now let's close yeah, this I, down altogether. Really yeah, and I hope that people that are still there will listen. I feel for you so much, Rachel. I'm so glad you've written this book because it's just something and people need to go ahead and pick it up. Where's the best place we can find information on the book and stuff? Where can we go, Rachel? Um, It's on the Harper's Amazon, Costco, Walmart. I think it's in pretty much all the bookstores, Barnes and Noble and stuff. All right. Well, and uh, I hope that you continue to get the word out uh, ultimately, my prayers are with you and your family now with the new life that you're living and that somehow, do you think somehow this church will be stopped in some ways or from Warren, how he's controlling it? No, you yeah. know, trying to force them, trying to force them to listen makes them stay more stubborn and believe in that Warren Jeffs is a prophet. It's like, I think if we're just kind and inviting, that actually is more of an inviting way for them to want to leave than trying to force them to hear it. All right. Well, thanks a lot, a lot for calling, Rachel. Prayers, my prayers are with you and your family, and let's hopefully we can get this stopped and stop the sexual abuse that's yeah. happening in, all, in that church and, and get stop Warren's power in some sort of way. So thanks for calling. Yeah, thank you. Thank right, you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Neil Haley yeah. Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Terms and conditions. We're back to the Neil Haley Show on the Author's Corner segment. I'm excited to welcome the program author Joe Hagen, author of Sticky Fingers. Joe, thanks for calling. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. All right, so tell me your background, Joe, for our listeners out there. I know you write for the Rolling Stone and the reasoning of writing the book. Okay, well, you know, I'm a... I'm a veteran journalist. I've been writing for about 20 years in different magazines. And about uh, five or six years ago, Jan Wenner, who founded Rolling Stone magazine, the editor and publisher, asked me if I'd write his biography. I'd written a few pieces for Rolling Stone that he enjoyed. And, uh, you know, I worked it out with him that I could write an independent uh, book about him. Uh, and I'd get full access to him and his archive of amazing materials and uh, and even some of the rock stars that are sort of in his universe, which I, you know, many of whom I interviewed. So I spent four years uh, kind of exploring his history and the hist- history of the rock and roll and Rolling Stone and, uh, you know, ended up with this book, Sticky Fingers. It's like a kind of a, a tour uh, through the last five decades of popular culture, kind of... Um, through the story of this man and his uh, kind of ambition and, uh, you know, uh, his circle of his universe of famous friends. So how how did Bowling Stone, in your opinion, shape America in so many ways, especially pop culture? Well, so deeply in a lot of ways, because really he, ca- he, he started out in late 60s San Francisco, Summer of Love, you know, era, 
and this whole rock and roll renaissance. And what he recognized, really from the start, was that rock and roll was the first expression of power of his generation. This was not just any generation, it's the baby boom generation, right? It's the biggest, richest, most educated generation really the world had ever seen. And rock and roll was their first, you know, um, expression. And so he follows that, he captures it in a magazine, it was a newspaper at the beginning, and he helps shape what it's going to mean to be a rock star and what it's going to look like. And with his, you know, Annie Leibovitz started at Rolling Stone magazine, she helps shape the image-making of rock. And they basically invent, reinvent celebrity uh, yes. for the new era around youth culture, which was a kind of a new thing, you know, at the time. And uh, they used to call it a youth quake. And it was all these new rock and roll kids, and they they're not just kids anymore, eventually, by the 70s, they're taking over. They're taking over in politics and in Hollywood. And Jan Wenner in Rolling Stone uh, followed that. You know, uh, it was like a kind of a journey of this whole generation as they took over the world until you get to Bill Clinton in the White House, who was one of their own, you know. <laughs> and, and do you think that Rolling Stone highlighted celebrities in a better way than some of the other journalists in the media? And that made the magazine popular well, as well? Well, sure. I mean, they, they also reinvented journalism around their own image. You know, this, I mean, at Rolling Stone and this sort of rock and roll youth uh, boom. I mean, that's where the new journalism came along. You had Hunter S. Thompson, who totally redefined and defined what Rolling Stone meant in the 1970s. You had this kind of wild man who, who wrote all this sort of comic, irreverent, uh, writing about politics and about the drug culture that was coming up at the time. And that was like their n- new way of, uh, you know, writing about things that were going to throw off the old shackles of objectivity and make it all about first person and, and drugs and it's humorous and it doesn't take anything seriously and it's sort of taking the piss out of things. And so this was the new uh, way. And that redefined, you know, uh, what journalism could do. And that gave Rolling Stone a huge reputation in the world of journalism. So, you, so Joe, what I'm hearing, and this is what interests me, is because I interview very interesting people like yourself on a weekly yeah. basis from different backgrounds and different things like that. Do you, do you think – what do you think were, from your research were the best interviews Rolling Stone has done interviewing celebrities? What would you say would you rank like some of the best? Well, the number one interview they ever did was with John Lennon. In December 1970, it was published in the first two issues of Rolling Stone in 1971. It was a huge interview. And it was John Lennon's essentially exit interview after the Beatles broke up. And Lennon had just been through primal scream therapy, which was like this, you know, allowed him to kind of dig into all of his emotions. And his first solo record was very much the expression of all of this. Well, this interview, it was like his views on what it was like to be in the Beatles. And he was very bitter, very angry. He was attacking all of the other Beatles, and he was defending Yoko Ono, who was in the interview. And, you know, Jan Wenner himself conducted this interview, and it was wow. a huge deal. And eventually Jan turned it into an entire book called Lennon Remembers, that John Lennon was very angry that he published this interview as a book because he felt so exposed and vulnerable in this interview. And Jan published it as a book. And uh, Lennon Remembers, it was called, but John Lennon himself used to refer to it as Lennon Regrets. Because, uh, you know, he regretted that this interview, you know, lived on for many years and in many reprints, actually, because he felt bad about how it had damaged uh, his, you know, uh, his uh, bandmates, especially Paul McCartney, who was very hurt and injured by the interview.
Do you think Jan was disappointed that he got that information out, or was he happy for the magazine? I mean, because, again, we're talking about new type of journalism and how Rolling Stone likes yeah. to highlight that celebrity. But this one is pretty heartbreaking for Lennon, for sure, and, and the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, I think John, I mean, Jan loved it. He was kidding me. It was like a huge controversial thing. It made international news. Everybody was writing about it and talking about it. Listen, he was a magazine publisher. He loved controversy. He loved it when people were talking about him and talking about his magazine. It made his magazine uh, famous and credible, and people wanted to read it. And they started subscribing, and it was a real turning point, actually. Uh, you know, on the other hand, he lost a friendship because John Lennon never spoke to him again. And, oh uh, you know, so there's a Shakespearean element to, like, so many things that ended up happening in Rolling Stone. And that's my book is sort of like a, a series of these kind of secret histories of all of these different rock star, you know, revelations and relationships. And that's, uh, I think it's really interesting because it looks like, it sounds like Jan had formed friendships with a lot of these celebrities. And they trusted him very much. And that Lennon story uh, well, yeah, that you trusted shared, them as yeah, far yeah. as they could. Yeah, I mean, listen, so many of the big rock stars and the way they got into the magazine, whether good, bad, or ill, like, was um, part of that they were all in the same social world. They were all friends, and in that way they were partners. And these were all kind of, like, social transactions that took place between Jan and and some of his uh, friends. I mean, he loved Mick Jagger. They were pals, and they still are to this day. But they also had ups and downs with each other, and a lot of it had to do with the coverage and how Jan, you know, would exploit uh, Mick Jagger, or Mick Jagger might exploit Jan in some instances, and you know it all kind of revolved around the name uh, Rolling Stone, which I don't, you know, uh, Rolling Stones, the band, uh, the lawyer for the Rolling Stones uh, attempted, you know, threatened Jan with, uh, you know, a, it sent a cease and desist letter to him because of the name right at the outset of the magazine. Yeah, there was, and there was like a trademark uh, tension between. Jan and Mick, and it went on for five decades, frankly, and uh, you find out all about it in the book. Um, and it sort of defined their relationship. So, yeah, these were partnerships. They were, they were in some cases, turned into acrimonious, you know, uh, relationships, but they were all personal. It was a small world, you know? Well, what I'm hearing from you is, between you and Jan, what kind of journalism do you feel that you have his kind of interview style? As John did, did you learn a lot from him in specific well, ways? I, yeah. yeah, I write in the book, in the afterward to my book, that my goal was like, listen, Jan was an incredibly ambitious man who published some of the great writers, Tom Wolfe, Hunter Thompson, and right. the reason that he, he gave them immense freedom to write whatever they wanted to write, and he published it, you know, courageously in many cases. And I felt like I had a high bar to meet, and I went for it. You know, this is the most ambitious book I've ever done. This is the most ambitious journalism I've ever done. And I just took it as far as I could take it. Now, you know, the end result is that Jan Winter himself is uh, infuriated by the book because I went very deep and made it very rich and textured, and it's a true, true story. Now, you know, powerful guys don't always like true stories, but he was, uh, you know, he's been doing the same thing to other people for years, so... I felt like I had to do that, and um, this book is the result of four years of uh, incredible devotion to his story. And I, you know, I but he, yeah, but I was inspired by the writers he published. Well, congrats on the book. We can pick it up in all finer bookstores. Always think about your independent bookstore. I'm a big fan. I'm going to be covering the Miami Book Fair again on uh, this weekend. So I uh, always am a big fan of independent bookstores and what books do and what authors do. 
Joe, the best place we can find information on you and pick up the book, where else can we find info on you? Where can we go? Well, you can go to my website, joehagen.net, or uh, just search up Joe Hagen and Sticky Fingers, and you'll find it all over the Internet. It's in all your bookstores. They're great independent bookstores. And, uh, you know, wherever you are going to find books, you'll find this book because it's everywhere right now. All right, Joe, thanks for calling. Thanks for coming on the show, man, and take care. Thank you very much. All right, take care. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show. We'll be back in just a moment. When we listen to the radio, we never agree on the station. Classic rock. Hip-hop. Pop. Guys, quiet. The one thing we do agree on, we all want an awesome free phone. That's why we switched to MetroPCS. Stop by MetroPCS with the whole family and get four free phones of your choice from brands you love, like Samsung, Motorola, and LG when you switch. MetroPCS, wireless, figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Free phone requires port. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions. When we listen to the radio, we never agree on the station. Classic rock. Hip-hop. Pop. Guys, quiet. The one thing we do agree on, we all want an awesome free phone. That's why we switched to MetroPCS. Stop by MetroPCS with the whole family and get four free phones of your choice from brands you love, like Samsung, Motorola, and LG when you switch. MetroPCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Free phone requires port. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions. We're back to the Neil Haley Show on the Total Celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome the program Stephen J. Rubin, author of the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia. Stephen J., thanks for calling. How are you, man? Oh, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Absolutely. Let's kind of, you know, really jump into specifically enough why you wrote the book. You've written some other books as well, and you've directed, you've been involved in Hollywood in certain ways. What made you want to write this book? Well, I was involved in a biopic about the life of Rod Serling. It didn't go, it may go hopefully soon, but there's this mountain of research that was done about the background of Rod Serling and the show, and I, I'm really a, a, a big fan of the show, so I know about the other books. A lot of them are critical studies where they analyze the, the actual episodes and talk about the motivations and things, but I thought that the big thing that was missing were the people involved with the Twilight Zone, not just Rod Serling, of course, who was a genius, but all the actors, those wonderful faces that made up the 156 episodes of the show. And a lot of them would be lost to history. And I come from a history background. I'm, I, I love history. And I love these actors and all these behind-the-scenes people. Plus, there was so much infor- in kind of behind-the-scenes information that hadn't been called. A lot of people hadn't been interviewed. And, of course, collecting the photographs, as many rare ones as possible. It was an interesting challenge for me and took a while. It took over three years. Wow, that's uh, pretty amazing. Over three years it took to uh, go ahead and, um, and, and, and write these, uh, uh, th- this book and looking at specific things. Now, you were, were you a Twilight Zone fan growing up as well? Well, you know, it's interesting. I was eight when the show debuted in 59, so um, I wasn't watching dramatic television in those days. I was kind of a cartoon watcher, you know, that was my deal, as kind of most eight-year-olds are, so... Uh, I wandered into my parents' bed uh, living room, actually, one night, and uh, they had an episode on about this uh, private club and this motor mouth and this, this kind of stuffy guy bet the guy a half a million dollars that he couldn't talk for a year. And I remember as an 8-year-old being really freaked out by the concept of not talking. 
So, uh, and it's an episode called The Silence. It's with Fran Chatone and Liam Sullivan. Liam Sullivan. And that always stuck with me. And then throughout college, it was, you know, the zone was always on in syndication. And then I, I actually got more interested in the episodes as I got involved in Hollywood and, and learned how they influence everybody. I would argue that every science fiction, fantasy, and horror writer, author, producer, director in the last 60 years has been influenced by the zone. Well, I, I absolutely believe you're right about that, Jay. That that I'm um, Stephen. That Stephen Jay. That it's it's just like that. That they're influenced in so many ways. And you know, when you think about specifically enough each episode and how very strange and, but also in ways you can kind of look and say this did this maybe could have happened to me as well, Stephen Jay. Especially the what the the whole storyline that gets to that point, and then this could have happened. You know. Well, Rod Serling came out of live television. He wanted to tell morality plays about the common man. And at that time in television, no, the, the network executives and the sponsors avoided controversy at all costs. He would be constantly told, you can't do this, you can't do that. It was kind of laughable at one point. And um, he always wanted to tell the Emmett Till story of this, this uh, African-American teenager who was hung for whistling at a white woman, a white woman back in the late 50s. And they said, you can make the episode, but you have to do it with a Mexican. And he was outraged by comments like that. So he decided uh, to kind of disguise his, his stories about issues in the world of science fiction and fantasy. So you have an episode like Eye of the Beholder, which is about this woman under bandages who's having her face adjusted so she can fit into society, the ultimate conformity story. And uh, it turns out that the society is on another planet and everybody has a pig face. Well, this is a story about racism and all of that, but it's disguised on another planet. Yeah, most definitely. And so he kind of tried to connect specifically what was going on in the world during that time compared to and make it into a scientific, uh, I mean, science, you know, uh, fantasy world. So that's really cool. And, and, and so he really wanted to kind of educate and have themes involved in some of the storylines that it sounds like. Well, you know, Rod Serling was kind of the first guy who really got television's power. I mean, he sat there and realized that you can go on the air and reach more people in 20 minutes than, than all the authors of all the books in the history of mankind had reached. And, you know, it's, uh, it's just an amazing uh, power. And yet we looked at the television with soap operas and game shows and police dramas and shoot 'em ups and guys selling coffee and used cars and realize that it's got to be more than that. So I think it can be easy to say that he elevated the medium for a brief period. I don't think Rod Serling's uh, legacy was immediately felt. I think they went back to shows like the Beverly Hillbillies and Gilligan's Island and and, and Gunsmoke, and it was more entertainment rather than thought-provoking entertainment. And I think that it took a while. I think now in television, the last 20 years, we've come back to realizing how really powerful the medium is. What is the ultimate hope of the book, especially, I guess, getting lots of uh, the Twilight Zone fans to read the book, but what, what, what is your hope for the book? Well, I, with the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia, I hope people have a handy reference book to what 
arguably could be the greatest television series of all time. And I know I get arguments about that left, right, and center, but I like to, I like to think that I, I'm toasting the right people with the book, and I'm hoping that people embrace the true magnificence of these casts, the storylines, and kind of um, give it a little historical validity, because I think it's not just about... Uh, you know, science fiction stories. This is important television at a time when we're all re- re-examining the way we deal with issues. And, you know, if Rod Serling was alive today, he probably would be dramatizing a lot more of the major issues of the day than uh, we're doing, although we're doing a pretty good job. All right, well, fantastic. Where can all the fans of The Twilight Zone pick up the book, especially, or also people that are fans of your work, where can we go to uh, pick up the book? Well, the Twilight, Zone is, the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia is available at your local bookstores now. It's also available on Amazon. I also want to tell people that I do a daily blog on Facebook. Those of you who are on Facebook, I have something called the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia where I do this day in Twilight Zone history, and I'm doing it for 365 days. I started in August, so you get a little fact every morning with an essay and some great photos. And I talk about some of the aspects of the book. But the book's pretty much available everywhere. All right, Stephen J. Well, thanks for calling. And then we can follow you also on social media. You talked about Facebook, Twitter as well, and all those places. Facebook, Twitter. uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Stephen J. Rubin, R-U-B-I-N. All right. Well, thanks, Stephen J. Take care. And uh, best of luck with your book. Appreciate it. Take care. All right. See you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show. And we'll be back in just a minute. 